BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. Now, here's your host, BJ Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with BJ, where today I'm speaking with a guest I've known for a long time, attorney Eugene Felton of the firm Stewart C. and Felton. Eugene and I go way back, and we'll talk about that a little bit today. But what we're really here to talk about are the cases that his firm focuses on, which is police misconduct cases, cases in which the police are sued for inappropriate use of force, wrongful arrest, and that violate a particular statute that is 18 U.S.C. 1983, which is part of the Civil Rights Act. Since Michael Brown and Ferguson in 2015, there have been a lot of names that we all know and have heard about with tragedies. Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, Walter Scott, and most recently, Stefan Clark. All cases in the national media with regard to allegations of excessive use of force by the police that resulted in the death of the people I just named. The number of these cases seem to be kind of quieting. And then again, here in 2018, we've got a lot more names that we've learned again. Wesley Lowry of the Washington Post, though, did an excellent article and update in March of this year, in which he, as of that date that he wrote his article, there had been 212 people shot and killed by the police in the United States. So even though it seemed like in the early part of this year we weren't talking as much about it, just not long after that article, there's the death of Stefan Clark, and it's front and center again and part of the national conversation. So it's timely to have my guest, Eugene Felton, talk more about police misconduct cases and the ones he's handled and the law behind it. So welcome, Eugene. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's dive right in, because your firm has been, you and your partners have been in some of the largest cases in this country, from the Walter Scott case in Charleston that people remember, the man Mm -hmm. getting out of his car and shot in the back. Sure. Um, The Alton Sterling case in Baton Rouge. Um, You just told me about a case that you just wrapped up in Alabama that was covered extensively in the media with a young man left in jail. Victor Pickett, Mm mm-hmm. It's a lot of things that you've been part of, and but I want to break it down because when we when we see it in the news, um, we we only get bits and pieces. And how do we actually get into court? And what's this law, nineteen eighty three, about? So let's start with the law. Nineteen eighty three. The formal name is forty two U.S.C. section nineteen eighty three. It is basically a constitutional tort. Not to be too technical, but it's basically a gathering of the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, uh, the Eighth Amendment. And basically, those amendments allow you to go after actors who have government authority. And basically, the best way to think of it is those officials who are government officials who abuse their authority, either by doing something like shooting or by not doing something in terms of denying people medical care. But the best way to think of it is government officials who in some way have abused their authority. 
And this actual law actually dates back, I think, to the Civil Rights Act's starting in 1871, which was actually called the Ku Klux Klan Act. That's right. Um, So that's the base of it. Um, But it is becoming more and more relevant in the last few years, it seems, with at least an awareness by the public of this tension between the police and trying to do their job and the police who go too far. And and, and to be honest, uh, for many of us, I've been practicing for about 20 years the law was sort of dead to us. But you know what sort of made it come back? The cell phone, the videos. That's the reason why all of those cases that you're now mentioning, including the Garner case in New York, the Sterling case in Louisiana, the uh, case, Walter Scott case in South Carolina, it's the video. And, and it changes people's demeanor and understanding that there's another side out there. So when the jury actually gets the case, and we're going to talk about getting it to the jury because that's a hurdle that you've got to get through to actually get the case to the jury. It sounds to me like you're saying the law has been there, but the evidence where people would believe what people were saying the police did. Because I would think most jurors, when you're trying to look for a jury, will say what most people do, which is we need the police. We, use, we care for the police. And if it weren't for them, um, such and such would have happened to me. Absolutely. And and because of that, uh, for instance, um, Governor Haley in South Carolina uh, mandated shortly after our case that you have cameras in the cars, body cams, and that's a furtherance of basically allowing the public to have access to what actually goes on. Um, as you know from doing criminal defense, one of the first questions that we ask people is, are you going to give the police officer more credibility than you going to give our clients or other lay witnesses? Because we know that that's a real concern. So that parlays itself into civil cases where before you had cameras, they automatically gave police officers more credibility, uh, more weight than what they were saying than any other witnesses. So you're talking about cameras and it's been significant. And I mean, no one can really forget those pictures we saw in Charleston. It was shot in the back. But what about these other cases where it's, you know, we see it, we see the video, and then there is an acquittal or on the criminal case or in the 1983 case, there's not an award that's made, um, even with the cameras. I mean, cameras are great, but they're tough at the same time. The the seminal case of cameras, and we're getting an outcome that we— wouldn't believe, based on what we saw, was Rodney King. If you go back, the verdict, the criminal verdict, was not guilty, the original one that was in state court. And in, a, and in the criminal setting, it goes to intent. And people then still have the mindset of believing and giving the police the benefit of the doubt. And police officers, they do a very, very hard job. And I think that that's why it's so difficult in the criminal setting, because one of the first things that we learn in law school is mentorous. You got to have the requisite mental intent. And people don't want to believe that about police officers. So that's why it's so difficult. We, we've jumped ahead to trial because we're trial lawyers and we like to get to trial. But there is that in the civil context, that hurdle that you have to get to of getting past a summary judgment motion, mm-hmm. um, a motion made prior to trial, looking at the law saying, dealing with the immunity issues Mm -hmm. that police officers have. Can you explain to us a little bit about what that qualified immunity is? Sure. Summary judgment is a tool that is used when you take one of these cases. You need to be cognizant and aware of it. It's sort of like a motion to dismiss after you've done some 
discovery, some deposition, some investigation in your case. And basically, uh, the other side who files this particular motion, it says you don't even have enough evidence to get to a jury. What typically you do, but for this whole thing called immunity, and it comes from the premise that the king can do no wrong. So basically, governmental officials get immunity, um, which means you have to show malice. You have to show what they did was not objectively or subjectively reasonable. And 70 to 85 percent of the cases get tossed. Even if you could show some negligent act, the immunity provides cover. And it's so hard to get these cases to a jury because it's hard to prove almost that malice was involved or that it was intentional conduct. And and that's the problem. So uh, even on the civil side, you lose a lot of these cases. Except for B- when you, before you get to the jury, you're losing them with the judge. You're losing them with me. the judge. There's a motion to file before you, and that motion for summary judgment says you don't get a right to a trial because you can't produce enough evidence. Is there a pattern to that when you're actually when you're doing this and you find that you're that the opposing party, the person who represents the police officer who's accused, and again, I'm in the civil context right now where you're suing a police officer or a police department or a city, mm-hmm. um, is there certain defenses that you see over and over that defeat the ability to get into court and let a jury determine? Yes, and we all see it in all cases, and here's the defense. I was in fear of my life, okay? When that comes up and if they can give a set of facts— that show that they were in reasonable apprehension of fear or bodily injury or death, then they can use deadly force. And it's hard to overcome that because if you don't have a video, how can you dispute the officer saying, I was in fear of my life? And that's one of the things that made it very difficult to even make that argument in certain cases like Walter Scott. He was running away. Walter he, Scott, again, is the Charleston case Charleston's that we talked case. about. Okay. And the officer in that case could not argue that I was in fear of my life. So, um, but so one of the things that you want to show is uh, is the unreasonableness of the assertion. And we've talked earlier about cases where the person may have a mental illness. They have a knife. You have guns, and you have several officers with guns. And even with those cases, as we see, they're sometimes getting tossed. You mentioned the mental health issue. Let me kind of go there for a few minutes. That seems to be. I know I've gotten several calls, and and those are very difficult to say to a family member. There is a documented mental health problem. The police may even know that when they go out, you know, that the call Mm -hmm. goes out with, you know, this person's mentally ill and they're out there with a knife. Mm -hmm. This analysis has gotten more difficult because in early April of 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court actually ruled in a case where a woman who was mentally ill who came out with a knife and the police just drove up and shot her, that that was reasonable that that was not a violation of the civil rights law. And in that decision, there was a very, very, very strong dissent from Justice Sotomayor, who was joined by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Sotomayor had said that this opinion really, really was off. She said, quote, it's a decision that is not just wrong on the law, it also sends an alarming signal to law enforcement officers and the public. 
It tells officers that they can shoot first and think later, and it tells the public that palpably unreasonable conduct will go unpunished. And see, basically, you've hit the nail on the head. To judge whether the fear was reasonable is a two-pronged test. One is whether it was objectively reasonable. Any Would a reasonable person being in the person's shoes make that same decision? And often that's sort of the hindsight. And then you have the subjective. Even though they should have known that the person had a mental health issue, they personally, at the time, was very fearful. And they give that a lot of credibility. They give it a lot of weight. And once you go back to the subjective part of it, it's hard to beat that. So when you do make it past that threshold, what are you usually seeing Is it only these cases where there's video, or can there be other testimony that's provided to the court that lets it get to the jury? There have been some cases where the facts in and of themselves will allow you to get to a jury. Um, I remember I had a case in South Georgia where an inmate was in his cell, locked up, and he had words with um, one of the detention officers. The detention officer goes back to him, take his spray out and begin to mace him while he's in there. And he maces him for about four or five minutes, and then he leaves him, and the kid starts throwing up. And the judge, a very, very conservative judge, denied the motion for summary judgment and almost indicated that it was summary judgment in favor of the plaintiff in light of the fact that that was both subjectively and objectively unreasonable for you to mace a kid. And um, we were able to prevail in that case. Uh, because the facts themselves, it's incredulous to say a inmate who's behind bars, you're on the other side, and for you to mace him continuously because he said something to you. So sometimes it's the facts, and the facts really, really matter um, in these in these cases. And then for the facts to matter, it goes back to what you were saying, having the video, having the yes. audio, or independent witnesses, if this is happening in an area where a lot mm-hmm. of people can see the approach and concern— you have a shot at pursuing the case. Yes. Uh, and uh, even though, um, and one of the things that we get to with regard to civil rights cases on the criminal side, if you remember, which I thought was horrific, the case of Tamir Rice in Cleveland when the kid was like 11 years old and he was playing with, I don't, he was just playing. They thought he had a gun. They drive up to the playground and immediately just start shooting, right? Out of Ohio. This yes. Was, that was a very difficult case. Unarmed and kid. It, I know, and a kid. I mean, truly a kid. Yes. Not, you know, sometimes when we see a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, you're like, wow, they could be like 24. But he was a little boy. Playing on the playground or doing whatever he was doing, somebody called in. And in that particular case, no grand jury indictment. However, they did settle it civilly. But the thing, they were in fear of their life. He had a gun. At least they thought so. It was just, it was just horrible. But even that case was difficult to understand why they reached the conclusion that no criminal charges would go forward. So, so that example, besides being just sad, it does show a distinction between the criminal part and the civil part. Because right. I think the criminal part, I think some of the statistics say between 2005 and 2017, there were approximately 80 officers arrested on murder or manslaughter charges for on-duty or off-shootings. And in that 12-year span, only 35% were convicted. That's, yeah, and that's amazing. Um, actually, I would have expected it to be lower than that. But um, I tell you, uh, 
the overwhelming amount of these cases. And what would be interesting is finding what are they found guilty of. Um, a lot of time they play them down. Or, or, but you're right. So that's the one, one of the reasons why you take the same statute. It is such a useful tool because if you can get good evidence, if you can have a video, if you can have independent witnesses, uh, that is something that will allow you to beat summary judgment and at least get to a jury. And in 90% of the cases, that's the overwhelming way that families get justice in these cases. Do you see a difference, because your firm goes all over the country, do you see a difference between an urban area versus a rural area in terms of how the courts or the juries view allegations of police misconduct? Unfortunately, yes. Um, because a lot of time the interactions, particularly in urban areas uh, with the police, there's a lot of friction there. So it becomes almost immediately more combustible, more combative when it's urban areas. As Think a, Baltimore. Yes, absolutely. More combative. And so you get these outcomes such as that. Also, Ferguson, where the Justice Department went in and had consent decrees because there are certain things involving minority communities where it was just not fair in terms of how they deal with certain people. So I think economics have a part to do with it as well. And I think that's that's a very important distinction. Do you find that it is more difficult to, in the civil context, to be able to be either be successful in court or get a fair settlement if it's settled for a family when the victim is a minority, black, Hispanic? It can very well be. Um, a lot of it has to do with race, but some of it has to do with economics, the background of the person. Most certainly if you have a person who is stopped, who's African-American and a doctor, and they, I think people are more, a little bit more lenient to listen to that that person may have been treated unfairly as opposed to a kid who's fits the prototype of what you think to be a criminal. For instance, that same kid who was 12, Tamir Rice, if he had been doing the same thing and if he had been an adult in a suit, I think he would be treated differently than a kid, sort of fit the prototype. And it fits our biases in terms of what we think we're going to see. And so I think that that does play a role into it. Um, Alan Dershowitz said something that was very interesting about the Walter Scott case. Um, Walter Scott initially was pulled over because he had like a missing tail light out on his Mercedes Benz, and, and he pulled him over. And Alan Dershowitz says, "Why people don't get stopped for that?" <laughs> and that, was, that was, you know, that was just interesting. Well, I, and it's it's honest. I'm sure there's somebody who's listening to yeah. this who's white who's been pulled over. Yeah. But I just but you I get even, that point. No, I get the point. Well, I remember, you know. The other part for people with all these cases is the amount of fear of every minority when they are pulled over by the police. I know I had a case, a criminal case, and um, a wonderful man, and he got pulled over, you know, late at night. It was like 11 o'clock at night, and the officer pulled up and said, you had a taillight out. He's like, no, I don't. And then the officer's like, I smell weed, and he's thinking, I don't have weed in the car. Fortunately, back to the cell phone, he goes back. The police officer brings him the back, and he 
is able to get his phone back there and films that there's no tail light out because wow. it's 11 o'clock at night. You can see the light is working fine. And then they found no weed in the car. And then they found one pill that had fallen out of wow. a prescription drug, but one pill. And so they arrested him for that. Now, fortunately, I got everything dismissed. But the trauma of going through that and knowing that if it would have been little blonde B.J. Bernstein at 11 o'clock at night leaving, you know, a coffee shop and riding around in her Subaru, I don't think it would have been pulled over. Mm-hmm. And if I had, I don't think they would immediately just come up to my window and said, smells like weed in here. And that's what you're describing is yeah, this, sure. um, that it's still, it's still there. Yeah. Do you feel like, you know, because some, sometimes lawyers, when we talk about suing folks, that we're doing it besides for the individual, that there's a societal benefit because when you sue a government entity or a law enforcement entity, that the departments start taking on better training and oh, making wow. sure that, you know, they should be doing it because it was wrong, but that liability is causing some corrections. Absolutely. There's a public right that's vindicated by taking these cases. Um, One of the things that I think was one of the legacies of us representing Walter Scott is within months, the state of Carolina mandated cameras, body cams, and many other states uh, because they're doing a public job and the public should know what's going on. And so, as we said before, one of the reasons that we are beginning to become more cognizant and more open-minded about understanding and realizing that there are police officers, very few, who abuse their authority, and one of the ways we've learned that is by the camera. And so for you to have that in cars and on, and on the officers, I think that that's, that's a very good thing to have. Although then you get into, when do you turn on the camera? That's true. Because <laughs> I think I've been seeing some litigation lately where, you know, they're turning it on. Mm-hmm. The police department says what time to turn it on. The officer is not turning it on that time. And then what you get is an abridged version. That's true. And therefore, you don't get the full picture. And then you're fighting in court again. Again, Yeah, absolutely. So, so for every invention, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. those who want to get around it seem to find a way. You definitely have that. But by and large, um, I think overall, and, and you do have the, the benefits of, of having that, is something that uh, has been very, very useful uh, these last few years. You mentioned a little bit about the jail situation in 1983 cases in terms of jail and prisons and how people are treated there. Mm-hmm. Can you go in a little bit more detail about what those cases look like in terms of the issues in a prison or a jail setting? Yes. Once the state or the government takes possession, custody of you, at a minimum they have an obligation under the Constitution to provide you food, decent shelter, and your medical needs. And there are a lot of instances when inmates don't get the medical attention that they uh, are entitled. And the standard using the same 1983 law, is whether the jail or the government official was deliberately indifferent to the medical needs. And we've had instances, the Victor Pickett case, where a kid comes into the jail, um, he had a number of issues, and he was wanting to see the nurse, see the doctor, and they would not let him see either, 
And over a period of time, he began to get worse, worse, and worse, and he died about six days later. Well, he was in need of medical attention. They knew it. And so the most important thing is that people, and our Constitution recognizes this, even though they're inmates, there are certain minimum rights that they always have, and the right to medical care is one of them, um, at least a minimum level. So we are allowed to use 1983 to vindicate inmates, detainees' rights who have been mistreated or had the authority by officers abused in terms of not getting them what they need. What about cases dealing with solitary confinement and the what happens to an inmate during that? Have you been involved? Are you aware of some no, of the No, I have been. That's a new thing. Um, and and that's, that's been coming about um, because of our society. We are becoming more cognizant, and I'm going to say the brain, mental health issues, whether it's the football announcement with uh, CTE. Um, mental health issues are really becoming prevalent in our society, and we're realizing what solitary confinement does to you mentally and the permanency and the long-lasting effect far outweighs, in many instances, what they do to you by putting you in solitary confinement. So that's a sort of a new front. That's almost cruel and unusual in and of itself sometimes. And I'm wondering, you know, with my criminal work, a lot of times I'll know a client is schizophrenic or bipolar, and that is not a legal excuse, and therefore they still get convicted. But then they're going to a facility being diagnosed bipolar and mm-hmm. schizophrenic. There are others who are just undiagnosed because they didn't have the mental exam. Mm-hmm. And then that type of person gets put in solitary confinement. So you compound the mental health problem right. with the isolation and the fact that the prisons – you just mentioned that regular medical care is a problem. I mean, Absolutely. mental health care is almost non-existent. That's right. That's right. And I hope, and I, th- and that's one of the things that people like to make jokes about lawyers, but that's one thing that I think a lot of lawyers who are civil rights lawyers who handle these cases um, can bring to the forefront and get these people help and, and make people aware that oftentimes that uh, uh, people who have those issues they're real medical issues, paranoid schizophrenia, things of that sort. We had a case in Douglasville that we just resolved. Uh, they picked the guy up because he wanted to catch spaceships. He was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenia. He wanted to catch a spaceship. He kept saying, I want to catch a spaceship. They put him in jail. They lock him up. They give him a bond. Well, he goes out like 10 minutes later, and he basically thanks the officers for letting him go. And he tells them, I can go now and catch a spaceship, right? He goes out and stands in the middle of the road, and he get crushes by a car because he was trying to catch a spaceship. Now, that person, if he had had been having a heart attack in the jail and they knew he was having a heart attack, they would have never let him go without seeking medical attention. But in our case, they let him go simply because they didn't see schizophrenia as a medical need. And so um, they changed their policies, and we were able uh, to resolve that case favorably. But those are the kind of issues that we deal with, and that still f- w- would be a case that we brought in in 1983. As we get the near, near the end of our cup of tea, because we have a different <laughs> cup of tea with every episode, and we are enjoying a vanilla tea, which I chose because it's a, a brain-enhancing tea. And antioxidants. Lord kn- yep, antioxidants. And Lord knows if you're doing this work, uh, your brain has to work overtime. Very good, in, very good. Because more than 
any other area, you know, when you have a car accident and you sue, we, we know what it's about. Yeah. But these are constitutional issues that are very complex. Mm-hmm. But what kind of things in a perfect world, if you could take what you've done in law and what you've seen and and your law partners and all these cases of what minimal things could we do that wouldn't cost that much? Because that's always cost is a big deal. I get it. But what are the simple things that could be done uniformly to help improve where people, when they interact with the police, feel safe and their constitutional rights are protected? I I, I think, and one we've mentioned, um, cameras. I think that that's important. I think it's good to have a civilian, uh, maybe, board that reviews uh, police misconduct and make recommendations internally. You'll be surprised. A lot of times we've been very successful by having internal reviews from police officers inside who have found police officers to be um, wrong and have called them on it. So I think civilian review is good. But at the most basic level, I think we need to have more interactions in a positive setting with minority communities and the police officers. Um, Just more good interactions, walking the street, talking to people. Community policing. I think that's to let them know that really we're there to serve you. We're your friend uh, because most of the people that they police are good people. So I think that community interaction is something that we need. Well, I appreciate your insight and your hard work. Um, I've known Eugene a long time. We were over baby. 20 years. Yes, over 20 years. We were baby lawyers, and he was across the hall doing 1983 work yes. right when he got to law school. And I had just opened my law office. I had left the DA's office, and we would commiserate about our confusion of yeah. what we were doing. Um, I think we're a lot less confused That's now right. in some ways, and yet others, um, it's why we can keep doing this, because it's constantly changing. That's right. And it's constantly a fight. And um, I thank you for fighting. You're thank a fighter. You I knew it when I met you. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Look forward to coming back. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ music theme written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein, Esquire.